see you family. Missed you last week while my family and I were freezing up in Tokyo. It was cold. You should go sometime. I was hoping for snow. It didn't really snow, but I think I saw some flurries right as we were leaving. At least it was raining and it looked like it was cool enough. The rain kind of looked a little bit like snow. We were on vacation, but we were also spending time with our good friends Joey and Giselle. Uh, Joey and Giselle planted the Bridge Fellowship, which is one of four Acts 29 churches in Japan, so they're part of our family. And um, they also happen to be a church planting couple that our church collectively supports financially. Like We support them as missionaries, and we featured them this month. So hopefully if you were here a couple weeks ago, four weeks ago, and two weeks ago, you were, uh, you were introduced to them uh, by pictures on the screen. We've been praying for them this month. Uh, but it was a great time. We got to worship with them on Sunday. And they've planted an international church. So um, English is part of every worship gathering. And I, just, I, I say that to you because probably all of you will visit Tokyo while you're here. And if you're there on a weekend, uh, I would encourage you while you're traveling on weekends and you're away from your regular church family, um, Jesus is still worthy of your, your attention, your affections on a Sunday, and you never know who, who God might use to encourage you and who you could encourage. So we should still gather with God's family when we can, wherever we are. Uh, but they speak English. So have you been to Shibuya Crossing yet? Okay. So from Shibuya, you just get on a train and it's what, like two, three minutes down the line? I would tell you the exact neighborhood's name, but I can't pronounce it and sound like an intelligent human being at the same time. So I'm not going to try, but um, it's on their their website. But yeah, very diverse, global family there, people from all over the world. Uh, So you'll fit right in and uh, the service will either be translated into English or be in English and translated into Japanese. So uh, you can go worship with them. All right. Well, I want to say Merry Christmas. Uh, This is your last Christmas of the decade before we get into the Roaring Twenties. So make it a good one with your family. And uh, I'm looking forward to our Christmas Eve gathering on Tuesday evening for a lot of reasons. One, because we have real candles and everybody, well, at least the first 100 people here will get one. Parents, you can just exercise your own discretion with your kids and what you want to do. Uh, Just for your planning, we do not have any fire suppression systems in the building. No smoke detectors and no sprinklers, which actually makes me glad because that means we can have real fire in here and have a candlelight service. If we had all that stuff... It'd probably be way too risky to light 100 candles and sing, you know, carols together. But we don't have any of that stuff, so we can. So I'm looking forward to that. But I'm also looking forward to the readings, both from Scripture and, man, I really appreciate the readers who have volunteered to, volunteered to read creatively from the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's a real gift to our kids, so thank you. And uh, it's a real gift to our families. Parents, if you don't know about the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should Google it and check it out. But we'll read the passages of Scripture that talk through the narrative of Jesus' birth, and then we'll couple that with readings from the, from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that as well. I want to encourage you to just prayerfully consider who you could invite to join us on Tuesday evening, friends or coworkers or neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. It'll be a really good opportunity um, to introduce them to the, the narrative of his birth and the hope of our redemption in, in Jesus. So with that, let's pray and we'll get right down to work in Ruth. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Uh, We pray that you would do for us what we can't do for ourselves, Uh, bring our hearts to life again, uh, help uh, cultivate humility in our hearts, just root out all of that pride so that we are not depending upon ourselves, not looking to ourselves, but looking to you 
and listening to you and gladly submitting to you, Jesus, as our King, not, not begrudgingly. Uh, Father, my own heart this morning, last night, have been slow to be glad and to be at peace and to be at rest. And so I pray that you would cultivate those things for me and for those in here who are not rested. I pray that you would give them rest in Jesus. For those whose hope is just waning, I pray that you would restore hope. And for those whose joy is just, just gone, I pray that through Jesus you would begin restoring their joy again this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we continue our Advent series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And a few of you have asked, hey John, why would we preach from this obscure Old Testament book during Advent? And why on the Sunday before Christmas would you, would you stay in Ruth and not like give us a Christmas narrative or something? Well, good questions. I have at least two reasons why we're in Ruth this month. The first one is this. The themes of Advent and Ruth are one and the same. In darkness, light. That's what Advent is all about. The inbreaking of God the Father through God the Son to rescue us, to just shatter our darkness uh, with his light and give us light. So the themes are the same. In darkness, light. The storyline of Ruth and the storyline of Advent are one and the same. God's far-reaching kindness is the light which dispels the deepest darkness of our night. And what we learn through the Advent, through all of Scripture, is Jesus is the Father's kindness to us. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he says. Jesus is the light that dispels the deepest darkness of our night. So the themes, the storylines, they're the same. Jesus is the Father's kindness towards us. God, the Son, is that light. Um, This is the promise of Advent, and this is the promise that just absolutely comes to life on the pages of Ruth. There's another reason though, and that's this, the storyline of Ruth and the storyline of Advent are about the same family. We're talk, we are talking about Jesus' family tree, a story that existed in his family. Ruth is King David's great-grandmother, and we know from scripture that Jesus, as king, um, is descended from David. He's part of David's line. And the beautiful reality that we see in Ruth and in Advent is this. Ruth simply did not belong in the family tree. She had no business being there. She was an outsider, a foreigner, far from God, far from God's people, a stranger to his promises, even an enemy to God's people and an enemy to God. No place in the family tree. But in kindness, the father adopts her in and gives her the privilege of preserving a family line that was this close to being snuffed out through death. That's crazy. That's crazy. So why Ruth at Advent? Why Ruth on the Sunday before Christmas? Same theme, in darkness light, God the Father is kind to us through Jesus, God the Son. Same theme and same family, from Ruth to Jesus, and and this is your family too. If you have repented of your rebellion and believe the gospel, Ruth is in your family line now. Like you are her great, 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 fill in a blank, grandson, granddaughter. Uh, You are, uh, Jesus is your king, but he's also your older rescuing brother. And the reality that Ruth is an outsider is in the family should give every one of us hope this morning. Because every one of us has rebelled. Every one of us was so far from God. We were his enemies. We were deserving of his judgment. We were outside of the family. And some, maybe some of you still are, and, and you know that you are. Um, so of all people in the room, the hope that we find in Ruth is most meaningful to you this morning. Uh, maybe you are a stranger to God's promises. You don't even really know what his promises are. And you have no hope of being reconciled to him. You think you have no way home. But in kindness, the father we see in Ruth pursues outsiders. He welcomes them into the family and calls them son and calls them daughter. So we, like Ruth, do not belong in the family. 
And that is the beauty of Advent. None of us belong, but here we are as a gift of God's grace. So to recap, because some of you, I see new faces. I was gone last week. Um, Many of you were gone last week. So I don't know what you've heard from Ruth and what you haven't. So let me give you a rapid recap. And let's do it this way. Um, In week one, I kind of just arbitrarily assigned a music score to Ruth chapter one. Like if it had a soundtrack, here's what it would sound like. And I was gone and John and I didn't talk about it, but he decided he would do that for chapter two. Um, So let's just kind of roll with that. Um, You know, and while we're rolling with that, really Ruth would be just so much cooler if we just, could somebody like get in touch with Hans Zimmer and have him write a soundtrack before we wrap next week? That would be fantastic. Um, Or if one of you like... Y'all could do it for us. That would be, that would be amazing. It, would, it deserves a, a Hans Zimmer soundtrack. So chapter one is tragedy. It's tragedy. Uh, so the music is dark, low, foreboding, heavy. It's slow. It's sad. Uh, you know, the kind of music that brings a tear to your eye and subdues your spirit, even if you don't yet know the story behind the music. Like that's what's playing for chapter one. In chapter one, A man whose name means my God is king, turns his back on the king, leaves God's land, leaves God's people in the face of famine. Rather than trusting God to provide, he decides to forage for scraps of food in his enemy's fields. So his name was Elimelech, his first character we meet, and we find out he's just like us because we do the same thing. Rather than waiting and trusting on God, our good king, we all the time turn our backs and go try to fend for ourselves and take control of situations. So his name's Elimelech. His wife is Naomi. They have two sons. Those two sons marry foreign girls while they're in Moab. Then Elimelech dies. The two sons die before any children are born to them. So Naomi is essentially alone in this foreign land. She's vulnerable. One of the daughters-in-law goes back home to her family in Moab. The other one remains with Ruth. She's like, man, wherever you go, or with, with Naomi, she said, wherever you go, I'm going with you. Um, so Naomi's uh, far from home, lonely, vulnerable, grieving, bitter. This is the Naomi that we see in chapter one. But in her brokenness, she learns that God has visited her homeland, Bethlehem, in kindness. And where there was once famine, now he's restoring life. Crops are going again. Um, sickness is being healed. People are well. The people are thriving again. And so she heads for home. She, she goes home and she takes Ruth with her. And she makes it home at harvest time. So even though chapter one is just dark, heavy, slow, and sad, The last statement of chapter one talks of harvest, which speaks to us of hope. Like maybe there's hope in all of this darkness. Maybe there's brokenness. And that's also the beauty of Advent. Some of you are just overwhelmed with brokenness, sadness, despair, fill in the blank. Advent speaks hope into our lives. So that brings us to chapter two. And if the music score for chapter one was dark and foreboding, Chapter two, John said, is where that first hopeful note is struck and the whole arrangement begins to move in a different direction and have a different feeling. The music of chapter two tells us that something better is coming, that the harvest that we read of in the end of chapter one is going to bring life in chapter two. Kind of like the first signs of spring following a long, hard winter that you wish you could experience here in Okinawa, but you won't. Um, but that, that first sign of spring, chapter two brings a ray of hope to those two widowed women for whom all hope had seemed lost. Their hope is restored, we read, by God's kindness through a man named Boaz. Naomi is back in her hometown of Bethlehem. She's with Ruth. 
For some reason, Naomi does not go to work. Don't really know why. Maybe she's too old. Maybe she's, she's just not able to go to work, but she stays at home. But Ruth puts on her, her work clothes and she, she goes to work. She's the loyal daughter-in-law. She's the younger of the two and she rolls up her sleeves and she gets after her. They've got to eat. One of them's got to work. So Ruth goes to work to make sure that they have some food to eat. And at the time, the law of the land allowed for widows, foreigners, and just generally impoverished people for whatever reason to really go into any field that they lived nearby, anybody's field, anybody's property. It wasn't trespassing. And they were allowed to harvest from the edges of the field, from the corners, and they could pick up the scraps off the ground that the, that the farmers left behind. God built this into the legal system um, to provide for those who were poor or who were foreigners in the land. So Naomi knows this. She sends Ruth into one of these fields. Ruth would not have known as a foreigner, but she goes to work. And it just so happens that the field she works in is owned by Boaz, who also happens to be a family relative. Boaz, we learn, is a good man. In fact, he's heard of, he's already heard, the talk is in the town. He's already heard of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, of her faithfulness. And um, he tells her, because of this, he says, listen, girl, you have been so good to my family. I am going to take care of you. You stay in my field. Um, you work with my people. I'm even going to feed you. She ate with them that day. And he said, I will make sure nobody touches you. I will make sure none of the young men harm you. I'm going to treat you like family. You stay right here with me. And then after that conversation, he goes to his field managers and he's like, like you, see, you see that girl right there? That's Ruth. Um, she doesn't work the edges of our field. She does not pick up a single scrap off the ground. You bring her in and you give her the best that this field has to offer. So that's Boaz. And... Uh, Man, Ruth goes home to tell Naomi of what happened. She had gone to work that morning with an empty stomach, and she went home full. She'd gone to work with empty arms, and she went back home with more than she could carry. She had grain for an entire week. And I'm just telling you, if you are a rebel who has not yet repented to God and come home yet, you have empty hands, and you have an empty stomach. You have an empty heart. You have longings that will not be satisfied. You know it. You're just still looking for that satisfaction or that fulfill, fulfillment, that identity somewhere else. You will continue to go to work with empty stomachs and empty hands. But the day that you repent and run home to your father, you will go back home with a full and satisfied heart and you will go home with, with arms heavy laden with the, the kindness of your father towards you. That's what we see here in Ruth. So Naomi sees Ruth, end of chapter two. She hears her story and says, man, God's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. I've always known he's been kind. He's so good to me. But wait, that's not what Naomi's been saying through the whole book at all. In fact, the day before she says this, what does she say? She says this, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She said the exact opposite. So that's good news for us. We're not just like Elimelech. We're like Naomi. We, we go back and forth like that every day. Good day, man, God's so kind to me. Bad day, God, I thought you were kind. Like, where's your faithfulness to me? What have I done? Next day's good, and we're right back. We're right back, right? Our hearts are so fickle like that. So here's Naomi. But what's happening to her? What's happening that now her, her words are changing, and her words reflect a change of heart? What's changing her heart? Naomi came back home to the father. Proximity to the father changes your heart, guys. I mean, that's, there's no other way to say it. That is the one thing that will change your heart. Proximity to the father. And in proximity to the father, you begin to know the, the father's kindness more and more personally. So that's what's happening to Naomi. And her heart is warming. It's thawing out. 
So now we come to chapter three, and we need a soundtrack. And I did not take time this week to use my imagination and try to describe what kind of soundtrack would go with chapter three. So that's your job this morning, because I'm going to read it out loud. And as I read, you use your imagination, try to see the key words, the themes, feel it, feel the passage. And you write, you just write it in your head. Don't hum it out loud, unless you're even a fraction of what Hans Zimmer is, in which case, just come right on up front. And there's a keyboard, there's Sarah's guitar, and just play while I read. But unless you're really confident that you don't, don't like try to come up and do it, because, yeah, that won't go well. Won't go well. All right, Ruth 3, here we go, chapter 3, verse 1. Um, so think of the soundtrack as we read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I not, or should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Look, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Again, he's going to be back at the same place. So clean yourself up and put on your perfume and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known until the man, uh, to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, Observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all right, all that you say, I will do. So we got some early intrigue now. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled, of course, and turned over, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, uh, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, um, in that you have not gone after the young men of our village, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I, I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer in the town who is nearer to you than I am. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as God lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, still dark. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. He measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, her mother-in-law said to her, how, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she probably hadn't slept all night. And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right, so you know where the, the story goes. For those of you who are left-brained, imaginative, or you love me, what's your, what's your, what are the theme, what's your music sound like? Hopeful? More hopeful? Is it like a restorative thing? Is there some intrigue? You've been watching your holiday Hallmark movie, so you've got Hallmark movie in your head now. Optimism, glad-heartedness, there's some intrigue, maybe some romance, mystery, what's going on? 
So what just happened in chapter three? We got just, let's, for our, our mind's sake, let's kind of give it three elements to kind of hang our thoughts on. We've got Naomi, the mother-in-law, planning, right? She's hatching a plan. She's scheming. Uh, she's planning. And then we see Ruth, the daughter-in-law, proposing. She follows through with a plan, pops a proposal. And then we see Boaz, kind of surprised, but he makes a promise. So we've got planning, we've got proposal, and we have promise. So man, if the events of chapter two serve to kind of rekindle Naomi's hope, her hope is a bonfire in chapter three. Like she's, she's a flame. Uh, she is absolutely intrigued at the possibility of what Boaz can do for them. And her wheels are turning. She's scheming, not in a bad way, but in a, like, this is a sign that her heart has come back to life. She's not hopeless anymore. She's not despairing anymore. She's tasting God's kindness. She's tasting more of God's kindness. And whenever you taste God's kindness, that rekindles hope. It rekind, it brings your mind and your heart back to life. It aligns them. And so now you're looking at this potential future with hope and not despair. That's what proximity to your father does for you. And that's what's happening to Naomi. So this is not bad scheming. She's hopeful. She's hopeful because she's familiar with her culture's family law. I'll explain that in a minute. And she knows the significance of Ruth's encounter with Boaz. Um, in fact, in chapter, last week with John, you saw verse 20 of chapter 2, where we learned that Boaz was a near relative, but there was a key phrase used there. He's called a kinsman redeemer. Now, unless you're here this morning and you're from West Virginia, like... I mean, you guys might use the word kin, but like none of us use the word kinsman. Um, so kinsman redeemer, what in the world, what does that mean for us? What, it's, it's a really significant thing for Naomi and Ruth. So let's unpack that briefly so we can, we can make sense of the story. I mean, because this, this really is a source of profound hope for Naomi. So let's start with the word redeem or redeemer. Uh, the idea of that word is to buy back, to buy something back, or to set someone or something free by paying a personal price. Like you bear the cost. The redeemer pays the price. It's he suffers for this good thing that another person will benefit from. That's a redeemer. Uh, that's what it means to redeem something, to rescue, um, to restore, but at great cost to yourself. So that's what a redeemer does. He pays a personal price for the good of a family member who has fallen on hard times. Um, and according to Israelite family law at the time, uh, this near relative or a kinsman redeemer was responsible to ensure the well-being of family members, both close family, siblings, but also distant family, um, even, even family members that were married in. Kinsmen redeemers were expected to do several things. Let me just give you an idea of what they would do. The first thing would be to reclaim property that had been lost from the family because of debt. So you owe a piece of land, you own a piece of land, and you rack up way too much debt on your star card, um, say no to the question, and, they, and so they take, they take your land, and there's no way for you to get it back. You're, you're broke, you're in debt. Kinsman redeemer comes along, it's his legal obligation to at great personal cost to himself, in spite of your folly, your foolish choices, to purchase that land and bring it back into the family so that it's not lost for the tribe, like for the clan, for your people. And it goes on generation to generation. Not just property, people too, right? So you rack up all that star card debt, no way to pay it off. You sell your firstborn into indentured service. They become a slave now. Like, hey, this interest is killing us, babe. How about Junior? Like, he can go pay this thing off that happened. Like that was a part of their culture. So the kinsman redeemer would come along and be like, no, this is not going to happen. Not in this family. 
I pay the debt, great personal cost to myself. Junior comes home, debt satisfied, everybody's having. Stop using the star card, right? Like that's the kinsman redeemer's role. Uh, there's another element, and this might be my favorite. Um, if a family member was murdered or unjustly killed, the kinsman redeemer was responsible to find out who, to find out where, to track the person down, and to take the law into their own hands and to execute vengeance, um, punisher style. Like, this is the role of the kinsman redeemer. That's not a legal thing anymore, guys. So don't like, no kinsman redeemers in the room in that sense. So that's another role. One more that really matters to this story. Um, a kinsman redeemer could fulfill the role that would be most often fulfilled by a brother-in-law, but a more distant relative could do it too. And that is if, if a dude's brother married a woman and they hadn't had any children yet and his brother dies, he can take her as a wife. It's not for his own benefit though. He takes her as a wife. He fathers children with her and he, he lives as a father for the children, but he names them after his brother, after the deceased relative for her good, for his good, for the perpetuation of his name down through the generations, for his kids, for those kids good. Um, that's what a kinsman redeemer could do. So all of these ideas are wrapped up when they realize Boaz is this guy and he could potentially serve as a kinsman redeemer. Like all of that is wrapped up in this role. So Naomi's hopeful, you can imagine. And she's planning because Ruth just had, chapter two was a really positive encounter with Boaz and she'd never met the guy before. So she comes home, she tells a story and Ruth's, Naomi's like, man, this could really, really work. And so now she's hatching the plan for Ruth to present herself to Boaz for redemption in hopes that he will choose to fulfill these responsibilities for their good. So that's the first part of chapter three, Naomi is planning. And next we see Ruth proposing. So let's make sense of the feet and the blankets and this little ritual that's kind of unfolding before our Western eyes that thousands of years removed from. Like this, this is just really weird and I don't even know what's going on here. So let, let's see. Ruth goes to the threshing floor and where the harvest is prepared and they're, they're getting out all the grains and the stuff they can keep. They work all day, they feast, and then they go to sleep and they wake up and they do it again. So she goes to the threshing floor. She does exactly what her mother-in-law asked her to do. And Ruth waits until Boaz is asleep. She sneaks over and uncovers his feet and lays down right at his feet, probably perpendicular uh, to, his, to his feet. And... Um, He's startled, as you might expect, like your feet are uncovered on a cold night. Like that's a reason to be startled. But um, he's, out, he's out in the wild, so he feels movement at his feet, right? He's there to protect the harvest from bad guys. So maybe it's a bad guy. Maybe it's a critter. Who knows? He wakes up. He looks down, and there's a, a woman at his feet. And so he asks the natural question, who are you, and why are you at my feet? And so in this moment, when that question is asked, this is the moment that Ruth has been coached up for by Naomi. It's, it's what she's been looking for for about 12 hours, probably, probably freaking out about what to say next or what to say when this happens. Like, how is this conversation going to go? And she proposes. And in this conversation, she definitely asks Boaz to assume the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. That's what's going on in this little ceremony. But there's a little bit more. Um, she, what we see here is really Ruth proposing popping the idea of marriage. That's really what she's asking for. So not just the basics of kinsman redeemer stuff. Like she's asking Boaz to just be all in on being the kinsman redeemer for uh, her family. 
Um, we know that because she says this. She, she asks Boaz to spread your wings over your servant, which could just mean, please act as a redeemer for my good. Uh, we saw that language in chapter two, actually, last week, verse 12, where Boaz said to Ruth, hey, I see you've come from Moab, you're a stranger, but you've come uh, to God's people and to God's land, and under him, under his wings, you have come to take refuge. So really, what this is fascinating. What Ruth is doing, think about it. She's been, her, her mother-in-law's asked her to do this. She agrees. She doesn't know the guy. She's basically been tasked to propose marriage, and what does she do? She, she flips the very same line that Boaz had said to her the day before. She's like, ah, that's it. I'll, he'll like that. I'll use, I'll use this and I'll lead in. I'll make that my request. And we know she's most likely asking for marriage because that phrase, um, that phrase like asking for wings to, to be spread over so I can take refuge under your wings, that is a euphemistic idiom of the day for Hebrew language for marriage. Like you would say that in your proposal. That's what she's doing. That's exactly what she's saying. Now, I want to say this. Some people kind of um, hypersexualize this scene, like a little more HBO, a little less Hallmark kind of, like they see in the feet and the blankets and the words and the way uh, Ruth prepared herself and that they spent the night there at the threshing floor, um, that Ruth is actually seducing Boaz um, and that the language she uses is propositional for a sexual encounter or that in covering her over, uh, they are lying together um, sexually. But it's clear from the text that Ruth is not using her sexuality to seduce and manipulate Boaz. It's also clear from the text that Boaz does not, does not take advantage of the situation, which he really could have. He really could have, but it's clear from the text that he does not. It's clear from Boaz's response. He realizes right away that she is doing this not for his good. He's not doing her, or she is not doing him a favor. Ruth is doing this for Naomi's good. It's not uh, a sexual offer to Boaz, um, he, she is proposing something ultimately that will benefit uh, Naomi. And he says this, he says, he says man, uh, Ruth, uh, your most recent act of kindness is greater than your first. And so some people see in that like Boaz saying to Ruth, you were really kind to Naomi and being loyal to her and coming back to Bethlehem and going to work for her. That's your first kindness. Your second kindness is that you're all dolled up and you're here on the threshing floor presenting yourself to me so I can have a really good night. That kindness is better than the first, but that's it's just not what's going on in the text. What he's saying is to Ruth and her most recent act of kindness being greater than the first, he's, he's saying, this is blowing my mind, Ruth. I can't believe that you would leave your family in Moab and come back to Bethlehem, this strange land, an enemy to your people, for Naomi's good. You said goodbye to your life for hers. And now you're here in Bethlehem. You're not only working for Naomi to, to feed her, but you have agreed to her proposal. Um, and you're here offering to partner with me in this kinsman and redeemer relationship, not even for your good so much, but for Naomi's good and the good, the perpetuation of her family. So he said, man, the first kindness was beautiful. This is, this is, this is blowing my mind. This is an incredible kindness to Naomi. Oh man, so now she's proposing this arrangement for Naomi's good, and Boaz understands it's not an act of kindness or sexual proposition to him, not at all. And what's better, I really like this, Boaz nods his head to Ruth's beauty by acknowledging that she could have pursued any younger man in the town, whether rich or poor. That's, so by implication, what is Boaz saying about himself? 
not the dude you'd expect a beautiful young woman like Ruth to be pursuing. Like she could have gone after any of the guys in town who had money and she would have been well cared for. But that would have been selfish and in her self-interest. That's not what she did. And here she's going to, to Boaz, who, yeah, sure, he's got a little bit of money. He owns some land. He's a relative, but he's an old bachelor. Like he's not really, he's just, it's not fitting with the story. Not the kind of guy that a woman like Ruth would be pursuing. Um, she's pursuing this relationship with Boaz, not for her own gratification, but for Naomi's good. And so Boaz promises to redeem them, right? But there's a catch here. He says, hey, there's a closer relative. So Boaz responds to her proposal saying, yeah, I am a kinsman redeemer, but not the kinsman redeemer. There's somebody more closely related to you than I am. So we're gonna have to check with him in the morning. And if he'll redeem you, great, great, perfect. But if not, I promise you, I will do this for you. So we got the plan, we got the proposal, and now we have Boaz's uh, promise. And so they're going to check in the morning. He encourages her to go back to sleep, which she does at his feet. And then he loads her up with more grain in the morning, just another act of kindness, and sends her back to Naomi with the promise that, hey, I'm going to settle the matter today. And so Ruth returns to Naomi. She tells her all about what happened. And Naomi now fully, I mean, she's now fully restored to hope. Like this, this proves that her hope was valid. And so she is fully back to life. She, her confidence in the kindness of God has been restored. And she says to Ruth, man, this man Boaz will not rest. He will settle the matter today. We're gonna know more of God's kindness later today. So man, you can feel the story change from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three. You can, you can feel Naomi's heart change. You can hear her words changing. Um, everything has changed, but what has made the difference in Naomi's heart, guys? Again, God's kindness, her father's kindness and proximity to that kindness. So much darkness has been dispelled since Naomi's husband and sons died. She had 10 years worth of darkness to be dispelled. And God's kindness, the light of God's kindness has proven to be the very thing to dispel the deepest darkness of Naomi's night. This once dark story that was just filled with death is now light and full of life only because of God's merciful kindness to Naomi. And guys, that is the hope of Advent as well. The story of every rebel, you and me, who embraces the rescuing king of Advent will know a heart that moves from darkness and death to light and life. Is that your story, this Advent? Your storyline is going to be different than Ruth's and different than Naomi's, but those same, those same key elements of your story will be their rebel in darkness and death to adopted in son and daughter through the rescuing king who now knows life and light. So look, the book, the book of Ruth is so short. Uh, we've only been here three weeks. Next week, we wrap it up and uh, we'll move on in the new year to something else. But we don't want to leave Ruth without recognizing just how rich in meaning the storyline is for us and, and the reality that we can learn from every character in this short story. There's something to learn from every character, but the beauty of the story is every character in some way points our attention to God the Father and to, uh, to Jesus, our rescuing king. So let's, let's do that before we leave this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll start with Naomi, we'll hit Ruth, and then we'll, we'll go to Boaz. So with Naomi, like we said, so much darkness has been dispelled from her heart. I mean, her opening lines in chapter three were this, Ruth, my daughter, 
This is just a tender address now, whereas before Ruth would say something kind to Naomi and Ruth wouldn't even respond. And now she says, my daughter, I'm going to make it my priority to seek rest for you that it may be well with you. Guys, these are new words for Naomi. Something is changing in her heart. She, she was crushed. The Naomi we saw in chapter one was crushed in the death grip of bitterness. But now that she is held in the father's warm embrace, the ice is melting from her heart. Before, Naomi was consumed with her own bitterness. She was just looking in. She was just looking in. But now she is concerned with Ruth's betterment. See, a better heart, a bitter heart only looks inward. It will occasionally look outward, but only to assign blame. Bitterness only looks within. But a glad heart looks up to the Father, first to say thank you, to give thanks, to give praise. But then that same heart in looking to the Father then looks out to other people, not to assign blame, but to look for ways in which that person can live for the good of other people. And that's exactly what's happening in Naomi. Her heart has changed. Her her gaze is shifting. Why? Again, guys, this is it. You got to hear this. Proximity to the Father. That is the only thing that will change your heart, especially when life is hard and your heart is cold and things are dark and you can't change it yourself. Your hope is to be near the Father and to pray and ask for him to do in your heart what you can't do for yourselves. And that's what he's doing for Naomi, proximity to the Father. She came home. And in coming home, she had exposure to his kindness. So as the story unfolds, Naomi is increasingly aware of her father's kindness. But listen, here's an important question. How is she experiencing her father's kindness? In impersonal ways? Through objects? No, through people, specifically Ruth and Boaz. She thought she had been forsaken by God, but now she's confessing that his faithfulness has not forsaken the living or the dead because... Through Ruth and through Boaz, the father is just showing kindness after kindness after kindness. And those kindnesses are warming her heart. Guys, this week, we have the opportunity to be like Ruth and to be like Boaz in this way. This is the time of year where people who are lonely feel like they're in darkness, feel like they're despairing and without hope. All of that is magnified because of the time of year. All of that is magnified here because of distance from family. But God the Father in his kindness has placed you just like he placed Ruth and just like he placed Boaz so that he can show his kindness to those very people in your life today and tomorrow. And so I would just ask you, who in your life right now needs God's kindness I would urge you to pray for that kindness to be shown to them. And then just as we've seen throughout this book, whenever somebody prays something for somebody else, what we see is they become the answer to that prayer. And you probably, likely are the answer to that prayer. Who in your life needs God's kindness? Now, maybe, maybe you are the one who is far from the Father this morning. And I'm glad you came. I'm glad you came. Maybe you came because you were invited. Maybe you came because we're close to Christmas. And I'm glad you're here But this Advent, this Christmas, like Naomi, um, won't you come home too? Don't run from the Father any longer. In your running, you are tired, you are broken, you are dissatisfied, you are still searching. Come home to the Father and know his kindness again. Come home. John gave a great challenge to us last week, and it was this. Maybe you are already home with the Father, but your heart has stopped rehearsing his kindness, and so you are growing cold. 
And what John encouraged us to do this Advent was to look daily and to, to work at rehearsing how the Father has been kind to us in very specific ways. He is good. He is faithful. He is kind. He, he shows us kindness daily. But if we're not rehearsing that kindness, if we're not helping each other remember that kindness, we have forgetful hearts and we will soon begin disbelieving that our Father is good. Chapter 3 is a beautiful turning point in the story. The story's not over yet, but conflict is now beginning to get resolved. First, the conflict in Naomi's heart, and it's, it's beautiful. It's life-giving to her daughter-in-law. Right? Now, that, now, that, now that Naomi is right with her father again, see how that is spilling out and positively affecting the people around her, Ruth specifically, for their good? There's so many implications for us guys here. When we are close to the father and glad and just... Um, thanking God for his kindness, and he is working that kindness through us, God will use us for so much good in the lives of people around us. So it's life-giving to Ruth, but as beautiful as it is, it stands as only a shadow of the Father's kindness toward us, right? Naomi called Ruth my daughter, and that's beautiful because she really wasn't. She was a daughter-in-law, but then, oh boy, died, so technically she wasn't really even in the family anymore, but Ruth deserved it. Like, we've seen how she's acted all through this book. She's just like a daughter, if not more, so she deserves it. But the, call, the father calls me son. The father looks at me and says, that's my boy. But unlike Ruth, I've done absolutely nothing for, to deserve the father adopting me in and calling me son. But he does by grace. Uh, Naomi sought rest for Ruth. But again, Ruth deserved this. Like she was a really good daughter-in-law. She deserved Naomi working to give her rest. Um, the father seeks my rest. But unlike Ruth, I don't deserve an ounce of his attention for my good. I deserve his judgment. But the Father in mercy says, no, John, I'm gonna, I am going to work to provide your rest. Not only is he going to seek it, he's going to provide the very means for my rest through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is our Redeemer. So guys, this Advent, man, come home. Stop looking for your redemption and rest outside of Jesus. Just stop running. Turn around and come home to the Father. You can't find rest or redemption apart from Jesus. Jesus alone is the light which can dispel the darkness of your night and give you rest. Christmas can't, as beautiful a time of year as it is. I'm sorry. Christmas is going to come and go, and January 1st, 2020 is going to slap you in the face, like cold slap. Christmas can't do it for you. The Christmas spirit, not sure what that is yet. I'm still studying it. Um, if it's a thing or a part, I don't know. But the Christmas spirit can't do it for you. The gifts that you will receive this week, they can't give you rest or redemption. If you're restless, if your heart is longing, that is actually the greatest gift that God can give you this season. If your heart is dissatisfied, the dissatisfaction is a gift, guys, to drive you back to your dad who alone can give your heart the rest you are created for. It's in Jesus only. So my prayer for you actually this Advent season is that you won't know rest, that your joy won't be complete, that you will taste dissatisfaction because it's the very thing that God will use to bring you back home to himself, which is what you are created for. Guys, Advent is for rest and rest is found in Jesus. So man, so we could just keep going on Naomi, but let's shift to Ruth. Man, she, she just keeps doing what we've come to expect from her. Her character in this story is incredible. Like what did we see today? Naomi devised a plan and for Naomi's good, Ruth Verse six, went down to the threshing floor and did just what her mother-in-law had commanded. Simple sentence, crazy idea. Her mother-in-law hatches a plan for her remarriage and she just does it. Like she just does it for Naomi's good. 
So that is beautifully selfless, and it was for Naomi's good. But if things went well, Ruth also stood to gain benefit from this plan. And guys, what we see in this is this. Jesus is the true and better Ruth. Because while Ruth went down to the threshing floor, she went there to find her redemption and her life through Boaz. Jesus, on the other hand, went down to the world that he created to provide redemption for rebels, not friends, enemies, through his life and his death. He knew he was going down to the world to die for our good. Just as Ruth obeyed Naomi, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father for our good. So thinking about the parallels between Ruth and the Advent this week reminded me of a song that I was introduced to last Christmas. Um, I had to ask somebody for the link so I could find it. And again, I forgot about it until I was in Ruth this week and I emailed them back and I'm like, hey, what was that song? And she emails me the title. It's called High and Humble King. And some of the lyrics singing of Jesus go like this. High and Holy One, you are high and lifted up and still you've come for me. And to the broke and the poor, to the weak and the whore, you have come for me, high and holy one. You dwell on high, you dwell in life, and still you've come for me. One perfect life laid down for mine, torn open for me. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Guys, Advent is the season where we ask that question. Who am I that you are mindful of me? I am overwhelmed, the songwriter says, that you were broken for me. And oh, my soul, my soul cries glory to the high and humble king. High and humble king. Guys, Advent is for being overwhelmed that Jesus would come for you in all of your rebellion, his life for yours. And now we have Boaz. Man, if there is a character in this story that, there is no character in the story that points us to Jesus more than Boaz's character. His words point us to Jesus. What he does, his actions point us to Jesus. Here are his words in verse 13. He says to Ruth, as God lives, I will redeem. He takes personal ownership for this, knowing it will come at great personal cost to him. I will redeem you, Ruth. I will pay the price for your restoration. So how do you think Ruth felt in all of her fear? It's so countercultural. Not only is she a woman in this day and age, she's a foreign girl and she's poor. She's basically a servant and she's popping the question. Talk about fear, anxiety, uncertainty. What's he gonna do? So how do you think she feels when Boaz looks her in the eye and with gentleness says, I'm gonna do it and nothing will stop me. I will redeem you. Man, gladness, joy, peace, all of these things, confidence. Guys, this is our hope in the Advent season. Like Ruth, we have all the same reasons for that confidence and gladness to displace our fear and to displace our uncertainty. The father promises, just like Boaz did, that he would redeem his rebel kids, and God the father is always faithful to keep his promises. Guys, our world is broken, but forget the broken world for a minute. Your heart is broken. Your heart is full of rebellion. So in your rebellion, you have inflicted pain on yourself and on other people. And in in other people's rebellion, they have inflicted pain on you. So there's brokenness in you because of you and because of other people. So much brokenness, so much rebellion. But in the face of that brokenness, Here's what our father says. Psalm 130, verse 7. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Don't hope in anyone else. Don't hope in yourself. Don't hope in me. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love, a love that does not quit, does not stop. And with him is a little bit of redemption, 
Just enough plentiful redemption, no matter how far you've run, no matter how far you've rebelled, no, no matter how recent your rebellion was, no matter how broken, no matter how much you've broken other people, there is plentiful more than enough to go around. Redemption. And God says, just like Boaz, he's looking us in the eyes, I will redeem Israel. I will redeem my people from their smaller iniquities, their minor rebellions, just the little things that I can handle. All, all of your iniquities. And that plan to redeem his people went into full effect in the advent of Jesus. Zechariah knew it. He prophesied in Luke 1, 68. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed. He is personally paying the price, sacrificing a great cost to himself to rescue us out of our slavery and bring us, bring us back into the, into the family. Jesus is our redeemer. He's the one who paid a personal price for our rescue and our restoration. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. Boaz was limited in what he could do to redeem Ruth. Jesus is unlimited. He can redeem every rebel sitting in this room and every rebel populating the face of this planet. And in fact, Jesus does redeem every rebel who asks for that redemption. So what Titus 2 says, Jesus, Paul writes, Jesus gave himself for us. Why? Here's, here's why. Here's the hope of Advent. Jesus gave himself to us, for us, to redeem us from all, all the lawlessness, all the brokenness. In Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We were cursed, guys. And God in his kindness lifted that curse by placing it on Jesus so that we could know light in life. And that is the hope of Advent. Guys, by faith, Ruth threw herself at a redeemer's feet. I'm going to just ask you this question. Have you thrown yourself at the feet of Jesus for your redemption? Have you? That's what it means to be a Christian to be a follower of Jesus, to believe by faith that he alone is able to accomplish my redemption. He alone can rescue me. He alone can restore me. He alone can reconcile me back to the Father. And so I throw myself at his feet by faith for that initial redemption. And then every day after recognizing, man, my heart needs that redemption to be worked back out. So I'm going back to my Redeemer's feet and back to my Redeemer's feet. We live at his feet. Guys, Jesus is the true and better Boaz because Ruth was beautiful and deserving of redemption. Do you hear the way her mother-in-law told her to get ready? Take a bath, put on her perfume, put on your best clothes and go. She was already beautiful. Now she's stunning. And so Boaz wakes up and like, that's all gonna tip, tip the scales in the favor of, yes, I'll redeem you. But guys, we are nothing like Ruth in going back to Boaz. There is, we, our rebellion is ugly. It's ugly. Um, where Ruth is deserving of rebellion I, or of redemption, I am completely undeserving. Now, religion would tell you, take a bath, um, cover up the stink, do lots of good things, impress people, uh, make God look favorably, favorably upon you, come to him all dressed up and smelling good, and you'll be all right. That's, re that's religion. The beauty of the gospel is you come to Jesus in all of your ugly and all of your broken and all of your stink, and you ask by faith, and Jesus, not begrudgingly, but gladly says, yes, I will redeem you. And so we live at his feet. Boaz would have turned you away. Boaz would have turned you away. Jesus picks you up and gives you a hug, and in the midst of your ugly instinct says, yes, you are mine, and I will pay the personal price for your redemption, even though you are this ugly, messed up sinner who, even after I do this for you, will love me imperfectly. Your heart will be weak every day after this, but I'm going to keep you. 
Guys, Advent is for throwing yourself at the feet of the only one who is able to redeem you and give you rest, and that is Jesus, your rescuing king. And my only question for you this Advent is, have you done that? Have you done that? And if you have not, then join the many others in this room who have been adopted into God's family simply by coming with all of their brokenness and all of their rebellion and throwing themselves at the feet of Jesus and saying, I need help. Jesus is glad, glad to bring that help to you. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us through Jesus. Father, help us to be honest with you. Strip away the pride. For those who are here and just know that they're not at home with you, God, please bring them home. Please give them the humility to throw themselves at the feet of Jesus and cry out for help like Ruth did with Boaz. Please. Father, for those who are home but whose hearts are growing cold, for that they would once again throw themselves back at the feet of Jesus. It's the only place where we find rest and hope and reconciliation and re- restoration. Father, for hearts like mine who are just weak and so, so quickly lose gladness and joy, Father, restore that in Jesus. Father, for those in our family who are right now this morning walking through the valley of the shadow of death because of overwhelming life circumstances, God, restore hope. Please give rest. And please use us to show your kindness to them to warm their hearts. God, help us to be made glad as we spend the rest of our time just rehearsing the gospel and giving you the credit for what you have done in our lives. And God, help us, push us back, help us to throw ourselves back at your feet this morning, this Advent. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen.